I'm Chris Changin Phillips. And this is Let's Find Out Live. Welcome to the Almanac on White, where we are recording live today. Let's Find Out is a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Wiskaigon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This episode, How We Make Nature. Um, everybody say hi to the listeners of the future. Hi! So, uh, did anybody else here feel like this was a good year for mushrooms? All the kinds. No, seriously. You know, twice this summer, I was out hiking and we almost didn't make it to our destination because I wanted to stop and just soak in all the things you could see growing. Uh, I started paying attention kind of because there's this chapter about fungi in this graphic novel that I'm working on. And once I started looking, I learned about the ways that rustlers rustle and how squishy Helvella crispas are. Um, and my friend Dylan and I, uh, you may have heard the Jasper episode we made, uh, we were stopping to look at these fungi in Jasper and he said he'd never seen so many different kinds in one place. And then he asked whether it was a really good year for mushrooms or whether we were just paying more attention. It's a good question. The way that we think about a thing can totally change the way that we act. Let's talk about the way that we think about nature. We talk about it as if it's something outside of us separate from us. But where's the dividing line? We use the exact same genetic code to tell ourselves what to do to make new copies of us as everything else. We drink water that's cycled through slime molds and clouds and orchids. There is plenty of evidence that we are co-evolving with dogs and viruses. A lot of us would say, but humans are different. We're destroyers. We make tailing ponds and we strip mountains away for coal and we put holes in the ozone layer. Okay, we've done that but we're not unique in being ecosystem engineers. If you've ever walked through a cedar forest, you know they can make that whole place feel cool and wet. Beavers make dams that change entire waterways. The presence of wolves can mean the difference between a healthy grasslands and an ecosystem overgrazed to the point of collapse. Cyanobacteria gave us this atmosphere rich in oxygen, and when they did it, they killed off most of the rest of the living world. <laughs> One thing that is special about us is that we have the capacity to imagine new models for our behavior, new concepts, new stories, to critically reevaluate our actions. And the idea I want to redesign with you today, one that's desperately in need of renovation, is nature. We are obsessed with this idea that nature is everything in the living worlds beside us. And that, frankly, is part of what's killing us. The, that idea has locked us into these actions where we look at the ecosystems around us and then we decide that we have to remake them into either human spaces or nature spaces. To make human spaces, we exclude or exterminate almost everything that doesn't serve us directly. The grizzlies, the northern blazing stars, the muskrats. And we only spare the few species like lichens and hares that are small or quiet or clever enough to tolerate. To make natural spaces, we do the opposite. We kill or pull out the humans who live in the spaces that we want to protect. The consequences for human spaces are disastrous. In less than a century, the genocidal process that tamed the Great Plains of North America transformed 
them from a grasslands that supported this huge diversity of First Nations and bison and birds and flowers into a set of monocultures so fragile that the soil just started blowing away after a few years of hard drought. We complain about crows and magpies and cockroaches and pigeons in our cities while we keep making cities that are hostile to basically every other living thing that could join them. We accept the transformation of boreal forests into tailing ponds because, well, we've got nature stashed away somewhere else in those parks. But the consequences for those natural spaces are just as dire. When First Nations and Métis families were evicted from Jasper to create the national park and told not to light fires, it started a chain reaction that led to river valleys that are today choked with century-old conifers ripe for attacks by mountain pine beetle and ripe for devastatingly large fires and full of fewer open plains that bison and grizzlies and other countless species rely on. It doesn't have to be this way. Right now, there are parks in Alberta and Northwest Territories co-managed by First Nations and provincial and federal governments, protecting and building wetlands and caribou habitat. There's a spot just at Wainwright where I went to this spring where a couple friends, we huddled in this bird blind at sunrise with some sharp-tailed grouse out there on the leck. Have you ever seen this, these birds performing? Have you ever seen pictures of this? It's amazing. They do this like drumming thing with their legs, and two of them will face off at each other and dance, and then they'll just stop and look at each other for a minute, and they'll move on. <laughs> and the reason they keep, they're able to keep coming back to this spot that they've been coming back to do these mating performances for time immemorial is because that land is used for cattle grazing, and just like bison herds used to, nowadays cattle ranching can actually help preserve prairie grasslands. So today, we're gonna hear three short talks to help you shake up your ideas about what's natural and what's not. Luke Wanick, Emily Riddle, and Stephen Rates are gonna share three different lenses on how we build nature where we live, both the idea of nature and the physical manifestation of those ideas. And then, we're gonna let you build and play and see how we can make more space for the rest of nature in our city. And of course, we're gonna do more than dream today. We're gonna to raise some dollar bills for an organization building healthy ecosystems and communities in our province, the Resilience Institute. More on that later. But first, some words from the folks who've made this season and today's event possible. Uh, this whole season was funded through the support of the Edmonton Historical Board and Taproot Edmonton, and I would like to invite Karen Unland, just deciding which visually, um, uh, to explain what it is and uh, why the heck they supported this season. Karen. I think the main reason is I can't say no to Chris Chang and Phillips. Does any, can anybody no. say no to him? Right, it's not, it's not possible. Um, thanks so much. Uh, Taproot Edmonton is uh, thing that Mac Mail and I started in 2016 to try to build what comes next in local media. And our founding principle of Taproot is that we want to answer questions that people have about Edmonton, satisfy the curiosity that people have about our city. Um, we've evolved into lots of other things, including um, weekly newsletters on a whole bunch of topics that kind of answer your question, what's going on in the arts, or what's going on in music, or what's going on in tech, or uh, in any of the nine um, newsletters that we have. So uh, we're trying to serve the information needs of our community in a different way, and we're really excited to be able to have made this information distributing a system that Chris has made through his podcast possible. So thanks so much. If you want to find out more about what we're up to, taprootedmonton.ca.
Thanks also to The Almanac for creating and to Ask for, Ask for a Better World for sponsoring the food that we are eating today. Ask for a Better World is a company that helps individuals and organizations become carbon neutral, energy positive, and climate resilient. And right now they're working with Cité Francophone to future-proof their community. And they've just finished creating a website called climateresilienthome.ca if you are into that kind of thing yourself. Uh, their website is afab.world. Our first speaker this afternoon is Luke Wanick. Luke first began to see the world as multinatural rather than merely multicultural during an MSc in nature, society, and environmental governance at the University of Oxford. Following that degree, Luke worked for three years with a small nonprofit called the Agroforestry and Woodlot Extension Society. Luke started a PhD in sociology at the University of Alberta this fall, where he hopes to better understand how conventional agricultural practices become and persist as conventional. And he's going to be rewinding a bit today uh, to tell us about a place that he got to visit while he was studying at Oxford. And honestly, when I heard about this place, I kind of shouted, oh my god, we need to talk about that at the show. Uh, because this tiny space gave me such complicated feelings about what's natural. Luke Wanick. Great. Thanks very much there, Chris. And thank you all for, for coming here today. Yeah, so today I, I've been, I'm, I guess I'm telling you a story about a place, it's called Ustvardersplassen, all right? It's a very catchy name. Um, it's, a, it's a natural preserve in, in the Netherlands. And as Chris mentioned, I, I visited this place as, a, as part of a school trip. I don't know much other than I'm just a visitor there. I'm not, I'm not really an expert in the place. But I, I think, just like Chris, this place has some relevance uh, for maybe what we're trying to do here today. Uh, so to start this story, Picture yourself as, as a gray-legged goose, all right? A big, big gray goose in, in the late 1960s. And, and, and you're flying. You're, you're flying up over the Netherlands um, on your migration north from North Africa. And, and, you're, and you're looking down with your flock flying along, looking down, and you see something different. Something different, something that wasn't there before last time you were migrating. And you and your flock, you guys swoop down, circle down. Just, just check it out. What's going on here? And, and as you get closer, you realize that what you've actually found is paradise. Marshland, beautiful marshland as far as the eye can see, chock full of reeds, delicious reeds. So you and your, your tr troop of, of geese swoop down and, and land and just start eating these, uh, these reeds, just, just eating up. And this becomes a place for you guys to stop by every spring and every fall. And, 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 and more of your uh, geese fellows join you over the years. Hundreds of geese, eventually thousands of geese, are joining you as the years go by. And, and you start to notice that as you guys are grazing, you're opening up swaths of open water. Where was once choked with reeds is now, yeah, p patches of open water. And there are other bird species that are coming in there, and they're taking up residence. And, and, and yeah, and you're kind of noticing, oh yeah, there's some other species around here. Mostly when you're there, though, you're focused on eating the reeds. So what are the humans doing around at this time? So the humans in this case, and around, around here at this time, are Dutch. And the Dutch are doing what the Dutch have done pretty well throughout their history, which is reclaiming land from the ocean. All right? They have this massive, massive project where they've built dikes around this 1,500 square kilometer uh, area just to the east of Amsterdam. And they're, they're literally pumping out the North Sea. They're, they're getting rid of the North Sea and making more land. All right, this was going to become their, their newest province, the province of Flevoland, it was eventually going to become. Yeah, and so they're finishing off this project. It took about 20 years, finishing off in the late 60s. And the government's, things are going pretty smooth. The government's pretty happy, too, because the soil underneath this land is, is pretty nice soil. It's good, it's rich, it's fertile. 
And so the government's like, perfect, okay. And they start to auction off this land for farmers. And the way they do this is just very systematically. Maybe this is the style in the day, but perfectly straight roads through this perfectly flat place with perfectly rectangular farms. Um, and they're all the same size and, and there's access roads are perfectly straight as well and they're, and they're doing this and everything's going well. They're building the towns and cities in this place in a similar way. And, and, it, and yeah, it's going smoothly, people are moving in, but people are kind of getting bored as well. It's like, ah, I mean, this is working out all right, but like, everything's pretty like linear. <laughs> like, could we, could we, we could use like a, like a park or something around here. Like, yeah, we could use a bit of, bit of nature, make things more interesting. And around that same time, there were some e ecologists and a group of ecologists and naturalists were starting to notice these geese, these gray lake geese had, had moved into this, this site that was slated for industrial development and later abandoned on the west side of this, this uh, reclaimed land and had taken up residence there and, 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 were, and were kind of congregating there in, in greater and greater numbers. And, and so, and, the, and these ecologists, they were pretty excited about this because gray lake geese at the time were pretty rare in, in Central Europe. And, and they also were noticing that the geese were, were creating habitat, they were, they were opening up that marshland and creating habitat for other species to move in. And so, yeah, they were, this, was, this was really, really exciting. They, they were like, wow, this is a really cool place. And so the stars aligned, and between the gray lake geese and these, these ecologists and naturalists and the government, they worked together to make this in, into a natural park and a, a managed natural area. Um, and that's Usvardersplassen. That came into Usvardersplassen. And Usvardersplassen uh, is 60 square kilometers, which is about a third of the size of Elk Island National Park. And it's not just marsh. It's, it's marsh and upland area as well. Um, it's, it's all very flat, um, uh, having, having been under the ocean. And so, so, okay, so great, we made this national park, perfect. But the government comes in and like, okay, okay, we're gonna have nature here. And then, but then the question was, well, well what, what nature? I mean, so normally when you have a national park, you think you kind of preserve nature, you, you kind of rope it off and, 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 and conserve what's there. But what was there was, was, was ocean. So like, yeah, what, what, are we gonna, what are we gonna do here? What are we gonna, so the Dutch being Dutch, they formed a nature development agency and then they, they hired a bunch of ecologists and they're like, okay, so, so, so what, what do we want to do with this spot here? What, what kind of nature do we want to make? And we have, the, we have these geese that are going uh, on here. We have some, some pretty cool things, but there's a lot of empty space. Like, what are we going to do? And there was ideas flying around and eventually they were like, let's go big. Let's try to, let's try to make nature like the Pleistocene. All right. Okay, wow. Okay, the, the Pleistocene. Let's, let's try to mimic what a Pleistocene environment in Europe would be. Okay, so the Pleistocene, by the way, is, is the, it's, uh, the epoch. It, it ended about 12,000 years ago. Um, there was, uh, there were, humans were just starting to come into, into, into Europe at that uh, time, but it was, or they had been in there for a while, but, but, but not, not, not in great numbers, we'll put it that way. Anyways, they wanted to make it look like the Pleistocene. They wanted it to be like the Pleistocene. And so, all right, and so, 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 so the next question was, fine, let's, let's try the Pleistocene. Okay, what was the Pleistocene like? And there was, again, theories flying around about what the Pleistocene was like back in Europe, and kind of a, a more radical theory at the time that, that kind of gained credence and eventually was, what they went with was the idea that the Pleistocene in Europe at the time was actually like this savanna-like ecosystem of grasslands mixed with forests or, 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 or groves of uh, small forests or groves of, of trees that were kept from encroaching into the grassland by roaming herbivores, big herbivores, woolly mammoths, giant aurochs, those sorts of things, all right? And so they're like, okay, great. This is the, this is the Pleistocene. This is what we're going to be trying to conserve to. Let's, let's make this. Okay, so what do we have to do? Well, we have, we have some geese and we have some rare birds. But we, we totally, we definitely need some giant herbivores, all right? Okay, so the ecologists, they were like looking around. They couldn't get their hands on any woolly mammoths. But they managed to track down some deer, some um, 
wilder breeds of cattle and horses. All right? So this is what they settle on, and they're like, okay, this is going to be our, our place of the environment. And they put these areas into, the, into this uh, park, and they fence it off so the, other, the farming uh, community around wouldn't be uh, bothered, or so they thought. Yeah, and, so, and then they just kind of sat back and waited and watched and, and just see what would happen. And things did happen. Over the, over the decades that came, there was, there was a lot of things that went, went down. There was the incredible conservation success stories of all these rare birds, these rare species, foxes moving in, muskrats moving in, all these species moving in and, and intermingling and their populations were fluctuating and they were uh, doing things that uh, hadn't really been seen and the ecologists were really excited. And sometimes there'd be population crashes and, and spikes and, and all these sorts of things, but, but things were, were definitely happening and it was really interesting um, and an exciting place to, to be, especially if you were an ecologist. And probably if you were the animals as well. <laughs> but this park attracted a ton of controversy. There was controversy from the surrounding farming communities who were uh, the stuff, some of the stuff that was coming in there, the, the, the managers weren't too concerned because they didn't really have any baseline. Some of the stuff was we can call invasive species in the Netherlands, and they were just letting it go. And the farmers, they weren't so keen on, on that sort of spreading into their areas. There was the risk of disease transfer they were worried about from, from the, the herbivores that were there onto their, onto their farms. Other conservationists were worried about the fact that they have these rare species that would come and then, and then their populations would crash and they were like, no, 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 you should be managing those, you should be protecting them. And the, and, and, and the, but the management team was pretty hands-off that way. So that, that, that was attracting controversy. But the main controversy that was, uh, it was generating was from uh, animal rights activists. The, the reason for this was because the population fluctuations were also happening to the herbivores that they'd introduced, particularly the, the cattle. And the, and the horses, the, the cattle and the horses and, and, and the deer would be eating, eating their way through grass and building their populations, building their populations, and then they get a really harsh winter, and their populations would absolutely plummet, and many would die. And they would die in the thousands. And it was pretty horrible. The, these animals were, were starving to death on a cold, cold, hard winter every so often. And there was a lot of public outcry about this. It, it just so happened, for better or worse, depending on your perspective, there was a commuter train that went right into Amsterdam that went just along the south side of this uh, area. So it's like, right looking out your window on your morning commute, you see horses and, and cattle starving to death and dying. O obviously this was not well uh, received. <laughs> and, and yeah, people were calling for it to be shut down and, they were, and, and there was a whole bunch of protests. And it's interesting to see the arguments that were going back and forth between all the different groups involved here. I mean, you had the animal rights activists were saying, if this was a farm or if this was like a laboratory, you guys, this is animal cruelty. You guys would be shot, shut down. This is not meeting any standards. And, and, the, and, the, and the managers, the scientist managers were, were like, no, 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 no. This, this is nature, all right? This, this, this is nature here, right? What's going on here? This is, you have population fluctuations. Death is a part of life and all that sort of stuff. And then the other, other ecologists uh, who didn't agree with this, they were from the outside, they were saying, no, no, this is not nature. First of all, you've fenced off this entire area. Second of all, you're pumping out water all the time with your dikes uh, all around this to, to keep it dry enough. And third, you don't even have carnivores. And, and so they were, there were are these arguments going back and forth because they thought that uh, some people thought that carnivores were needed. There was all these different ideas of what it should be. And the, in the end, there was public inquiries, there was court cases. Uh, they, they came up with some compromises. There was one compromise, for example, there was one of the management staff a team uh, uh, literally went around and was shooting the animals that were the weakest, that they thought wouldn't survive the winter. Basically trying, they called it assuming the eye of the wolf, to try to take the role of what the wolf would have been. 
and ended up in, in some of the severe years, they would kill thousands this way. But the idea was to, to make them suffer less. And uh, yeah, I mean, that didn't really appease the animal rights activists too much. It didn't really solve, solve it. So the, the controversy is, is still going on. It still continues and, and it, and it kind of fluctuates as well. And so I visited the site in, in 2015 and I, I, I came away with it with just some thoughts and ideas and just have been rolling around in my head since then that I thought could be relevant for us back here on Treaty 6 territory and, and Turtle Island here and, and what we're doing today. Because Usvardus Plasma is just such an obvious example of how humans are so involved in the construction of, of this nature that is Usvardus Plasin. All right, so it's just so obvious that we're, we're involved. Um, it was obvious to the animal rights activists who were protesting, and it was obvious to me when I was there too. I mean, for me, part, a big part of it just looked like an overgrazed pasture with drainage ditches that you could still see uh, running through it. It looked, looked very weird. And, but this made me think about the kinds of natures that I'd grown up with and sort of come to know. And, 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 and were they any different? So places like, like Banff National Park, we, we think we can kind of rope it off and, and, and let it do its thing and preserve it as is. But when you look at the history of, 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 of Banff and as was mentioned, the, the eviction, the indigenous evictions uh, of, of that place, the management of invasive species, the fire suppression, the brochures and the advertisements that make Banff Banff. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Same with our city parks as well. Again, in, uh, evictions of indigenous people, the evictions of homeless people, the management of invasive, the manicuring of lawns, all those sorts of things. We have a role. But it was Vardersplassen also shows us that it's not just uh, humans that are doing the construction here. It's not like we have an image of nature in our head and we project it onto the world and, and make the world so. All right? There are other agencies, there are other things in the world that made Usvardersplassen Usvardersplassen. The gray leg goose at the beginning, they, they shaped the landscape and laid the foundation for this park. All, right? All the other critters, the horses and the, the, uh, uh, the, the rare birds and the, and the cattle and stuff, their, their actions... Um, allowed for Usvardersplassen to take shape in the way that it did. Even you could say the fences and, and, and the commuter train itself shaped what it became. Without them, it would have been different. And the, uh, the humans as well uh, were not just the, the managing scientists. Um, the humans were different groups that came in. The, the, the animal rights activists, the other, other ecologists, the farmers around um, they, they were not invited in at the beginning, but they, but they had their say there, or they tried to have their say more or less successfully. And so I guess these two ideas that nature is made, but it's not just humans that are doing the making, I, I, found, I found those really important uh, for, for me. It really speaks to the fact that if you ever were ever trying to look about creating or managing nature, it really speaks to the importance of asking ourselves some, some kind of key questions while we're doing that. And these are questions that I don't think the Usvardus Plassen sort of management team really did a good job of addressing, which is why their controversy is, is still ongoing. And those questions are, what sorts of natures do we want to make? And who is the we in this? How can diverse, different voices and inputs be heard and responded to in shaping what our landscapes become? All right, thank you. Thanks, Luke. Our next speaker is Emily Riddle. Emily is Nehiao from the Alexander First Nation, 
She recently relocated back to Treaty 6 and lives in Miskwichi with Skygon. She's a writer, researcher, library advisor, and Emily sits on the board of advisors for the Yellowhead Institute, which is a First Nations policy think tank out of Ryerson University. Yellowhead recently put out a research paper that I find so fascinating in the context of humans and nature, because so often land conservation in Canada has involved taking land away from indigenous people, and this is a story all about land back. I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. Emily Brill. actually this tall. Okay. Thanks, Chris, for that introduction. So it's very out of character for me, but I'm actually starting my talk in Anishinaabe territory in Springwater Provincial Park. So in August, along with two other Indigenous organizers, I helped facilitate the Yellowhead Institute's first Freedom School on the Rama First Nation. Um, the two other facilitators are Courtney Skye and Shadi Havez, who are both based in Ontario. So as Chris mentioned, the Yellowhead Institute is a First Nations-run think tank, which was very badly needed because we often have um, institutes like the Fraser Institute and other people chiming in on Indigenous policy, people that don't have experience or don't spend time in communities. Um, and the Institute is named after Chief Yellowhead, uh, whose name was Muskoki, who was part of various treaty agreements in Ontario, and then also part of the Rama um, Reserve Experiment, which was the first reserve in Canada. It often gets, I'm a member of Alexander, and we're part of the Yellowhead Tribal Council, so it gets super confusing talking about that earlier, like this is a lot of Yellowhead in my life. <laughs> but um, participants in the Freedom School were impressive Indigenous youth from all over the country, who in many different capacities, whether it was media or direct action, were working on land and water rights in their territories and elsewhere. So we had workshops on Indigenous laws, queer policy making and solidarity building with black communities, among other things. So as part of this week, we toured the Springwater Provincial Park. Um, and this is a, now a co-managed provincial park, and this is a result of direct action by Anishinaabe women, um, and it's co-managed by the Boisele First Nation, it's actually our executive director's First Nation at Yellowhead, and the province of Ontario. So in 2013, the Ontario provincial government changed the park status to non-operational due to low visitation and funding. Um, the pro so the province took signs down that weren't accepting visitors at all, um, and then started accepting proposals from a private sector to manage the park. So the park is home to a major headwater, um, the menacing wetland, and the Anishinaabek worried the province is moving towards privatizing the park entirely. Interestingly, even though I'm telling you this somewhat idealized story about what this park is now, it's very threatened by the Ford government because it's only a five-year co-management agreement. <laughs> So Elizabeth Brass Elson, who told her story to the Freedom School participants, formed Camp Nabi, and despite ongoing pressure from the RCMP, remained until the province came to the negotiation table. She did this separate from her First Nation, so although her First Nation is now a co-manager, they did not agree with her taking this occupation of the park at the time. Um, so in 2015, the province of Ontario signed a five-year code management agreement, so this is coming up soon, with Boisele First Nation. Elson was also behind an action that stopped the creation of a rock quarry and a landfill and another important water source in her territory, so she's very skilled at these sort of things and knew exactly what had to be done and sort of what kind of calendar in this occupation of the park. So when we went, went and visited the park, it's now home to multiple sweat lodges, a site of medicine gathering and repatriation, and is visited by hundreds of settler school children each year from surrounding counties who come to learn about Anishinaabe history and culture from an Anishinaabe elder who is the park warden. He used to actually be the chief of this community as well. And one of the things he told us is that um, he agreed that all these provincial laws rega regarding provincial parks he would deal with and sort of like in this five-year period, but he really refused to word the park 
sporting uniform. <laughs> like that was a sort of thing that he just like could not do. And that was part of the actual negotiations was, yeah, I'm not wearing that. <laughs> Um, so then it's very clear when we went to the park and maybe it was who we were um, that the Anishinaabek who co-manage this park really envision a day when they are the sole managers of this tract of their territory. They see this as sort of a stopping ground to taking full jurisdiction. Um, and I agree, I think the only way for us to ethically move forward, and I'll like probably say this for the rest of my life and every talk, um, forward in this territory and beyond is for provinces and Canada to give significant tracts of land back to indigenous people. The Anishinaabek at Springwater recognize the park system is a constraint they currently have to work with it. So in thinking about this, and we talk a lot about, I'm taking a Nahio language class right now because that was one of the major reasons I wanted to move home from Vancouver was to, uh, learn more of my language is quite constrained in that on the coast, understandably so, it's not my territory. So we talk a lot about Elk Island Park with my instructor, Ruben Quinn, um, partially because he's a descendant of Chief Papaseo and Chief Papaseo has lots of stories about hunting um, in Elk, what is now Elk Island Park. So immediately after returning to Springwater Provincial Park, I texted a bunch of my friends from this territory and asked, what if we did something like this at Elk Island? Well, the park is at no risk of closing, um, not well, we'll see what Jason Kenny has to do. Um, no, it's a national park. <laughs> but if we decided it was time for us to care for our relatives who live in that park again, what would we do? If we asserted what is true, that we never ceded our territory in Treaty 6 negotiations, that animal nations never negotiated with settlers, and that hunting or calling of indigenous animals was never a right granted to settlers through treaty, what would we do? The area now known as Elk Island was a popular hunting ground for bands who frequented Fort Edmonton, uh, including my family, and pre who previously came to the area to trade with indigenous bands and nations. We now know it is one of the few places you can visit Pascua Mostos or Bison. Um, bison show up so often in my writing because they are so often on my mind. So Elk Island was actually the first federal wildlife preserve for elk when it was formed in 1906. And most of those same families that hunted in this area were unable to leave reserves in 1906. My family entered treaty at Fort Edmonton and then we were living on Alexander. And because of the past system, we're not able to leave at this time or very only with permission of the Indian agent. And then also we have other historic Métis families um, who would be hunting in that area and they're being displaced from their historic Métis communities like St. Paul, St. Albert at this time. So despite trying to preserve animals um, at this time of westward expansion, they weren't trying to preserve us. National and provincial parks remain nation-building exercises. Just think of the free parks passes available for Canada 150. <laughs> First Nations still have to pay in order to access national parks. Recently, the Métis Nation of Alberta have an agreement um, that they're able to access national and provincial parks free of charge, but not Treaty 6 descendants. Um, despite our relatives being preserved in this area, we are far away from enacting our previous relationship. There are lots of prophecies um, that the bison are coming back from the lakes, where they have retreated to, and I wonder if those are coming back are being called because they are too numerous for this small wildlife preserve. So further north from here in Kataskano, Noene Wildlife Provincial Park. So there is one provincial park that I would be um, Mistaken to not talk about, it's a new one in Treaty 8, and this is a result of the Miccosukee Cree Nation requesting this park be created as a buffer zone 
from tar sands development. Uh, it's much smaller, or smaller buffer zone than they initially requested. So it's open to traditional land use and unlike Elk Island National Park and is being cooperatively managed by um, indigenous groups which are not specified. I think this is under, um, comp or under negotiation right now. And in order to create this park tech, Synovus and Imperial gave up their leases um, without financial compensation of which they're being lauded quite a bit. And Mikasu obtained federal funding to buy out leases held by a value creation group of companies. Um, now, I'm not certain because I haven't talked to people from Mikasu about this, but I'm pretty sure it was a very deliberate choice to try, try and go after having a provincial park as a buffer zone rather than have um, it become request additional reserve land, partially because Canada is not in the business of giving land back to us, and also because provincial parks have better protection um, than reserve land as well. So I think a lot about land back as a policy person. I think about land designations and overlapping territory because I lived in BC with the BC treaty process and what that would actually look like. Crown land makes up 60% of the land in Alberta, not shrinking, selling some off lately. And this includes, that includes reserves. So as I mentioned, as a Treaty 6 citizen, uh, we've never ceded our territory, but we were also owed reserve land as per our treaty agreement. So when thinking about this, I, I obviously want individual land people who own significant tracts of land to give up their land titles when they die, or for oil executives who earn massive wealth to give their money to Native women. I support co-managed provincial and national parks, but that can't be a fulsome answer to co-managing to just co-manage Crown land. Uh, neither can these sort of like personal one-track returns. So. Um, in reviewing all these parks, I don't have an answer for you. I would like to ask the question, what is the reasonable model for return of land? Exemaga. Thank you. Thanks to Emily Riddle there. Okay, before we get to our third speaker, Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by the Well Endowed Podcast, made by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonking and produced by Lisa Pruden. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds and the podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. I have just wrapped up work on the last of my history stories for that series. It's an omnibus collection of all the little docs I made this year about Alberta's Prohibition era and the Gardner Theatre and the streetcar and more. It'll be out soon, so subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. This episode is also brought to you by A Tale of Two Weeklies, a new podcast series that digs into a topic near and dear to my heart, the rise and fall of Edmonton's C Magazine and View Weekly. Two alt-weeklies engaged in a newspaper war that neither survived. I actually got my start in journalism freelancing for View Weekly, so I only got to hear one side of the rivalry, really. I am intrigued to hear the other side on this series. Take a listen. It was a newspaper war. Good old-fashioned <laughs> knockdown, drag-out newspaper war. I think we were really good at uh, winning jackpots with lousy hands. I'm the type of person who cringes at pretty much everything I've ever done, ever. Um, yeah, my whole career is a series of regrets. For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one mid-sized Canadian prairie city. The rivalry was was like the only thing we cared about and we were we were soldiers in that ongoing um battle i just considered us sort of like this like special world of people who happened to be lucky enough to be able to do this 
it was really fun, <laughs> even though it made me miserable and, and eventually left me feeling sort of broken. A Tale of Two Weeklies is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. The podcast covers their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. Listen at taleoftwoweeklies.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The series is created by the team behind I Don't Get It, and it's funded by the Edmonton Heritage Council. Search for A Tale of Two Weeklies in your podcatcher or visit taleoftwoweeklies.com. Uh, our third speaker today is Stephen Rates. Stephen is hilarious. Oh. Stephen <laughs> is an urban planner with, uh, I can say this, right? Beaumont? Yes. yes. Yeah, Beaumont, beautiful. He's uh, a big fan of our beautiful city. He lives life to the max in the Queen Alexander neighborhood, uh, and he's on the board for Paths for People. Stephen can also be found running around the River Valley's many trails or performing improv with rapid fire. Uh, Stephen's going to be helping explode your minds about what's possible when we build cities. Stephen Reitz. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, yes, so it's true. I'm hilarious, no. Uh, I'm really excited to be here though. I'm here to discuss uh, from a planner's point of view um, how nature can be created or is managed in cities. And so this is the process that, uh, this is like a high overview of how the process works right now. Is it the process we should always use? Maybe not. Maybe we could change it, but I'll give you a sense of how things work right now. and. Uh, also provide two other kind of viewpoints on it too. Additionally, I've worked as a planner for like collectively two years, so I could be wrong, uh, but I believe in me and I hope you believe in me too. So we're gonna go with this. Uh, this Chris here in the present, just to explain what the audience could see, Stephen has a slideshow up behind him here. Leduc, that's where I grew up. So I have just lived in this large triangle between Leduc, Edmonton and Beaumont for my life, uh, and so that kind of colors everything I see, I guess. But to start off discussing, oh, I pressed it for the first time, and I don't know if it's on. Ooh, yeah. Small slideshow glitch. Okay. Help me, okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. Let's give a round of applause for that. Okay, now let's actually, I've just been, dicking around, we're gonna start seeing stuff. So, um, first kind of viewpoint I'll provide is like the straight process. Like this is how uh, you are taught in planning school, how the planning and development process works. Um, so, uh, what'll occur is we'll actually start with high level citywide strategies, like a municipal development plan that'll kind of dictate the vision for the future of our city. And it's gonna have broad policy statements that are gonna impact decisions further down the line. One of the first larger scale decisions or plans that may be developed by a municipality is something like an area structure plan, which uh, provides a vision or uh, sets out the um, development pattern for a certain area. So this is Creekwood Chappelle in Southern Edmonton. Anybody from Creekwood Chappelle? No hands go up. That's what I thought with this crowd. <laughs> I'm not too surprised. But what's going on here is the plan will have policy statements. It'll also provide a map that'll be like, here's what we're thinking is going to go on here. Here's what the transportation network is going to look like. Here's where we envision park spaces or natural areas to exist. So the next process is subdivision, which is so exciting. Oh my god. Um, so 
from that uh, area structure plan, uh, there may also be subsequent plans in between, like a neighborhood area structure plan, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, what'll happen here is the, uh, a larger parcel of land is broken up into smaller pieces. At this point, um, there are properties that are broken out. The roads, like the road right-of-way is also broken out and is set. Um, additionally important for like our conversation, this is where environmental reserves or municipal reserves are um, uh, baked into the land titles. Um, and so an environmental reserve is just an area that will remain in its natural state. A municipal reserve is typically something like a school site or like green areas of our city that um, receive a little bit more like management and human impact than something like an environmental reserve. Um, so everyone can breathe a, a sigh of relief because this was the least exciting phase. Okay. <laughs> Zoning! Okay. Uh, so what the last kind of municipal rate large scale municipal regulation that comes into play is zoning. Zones uh, are like a land use regulation that is applied to different parcels of land and they dictate what the use is going to be or what kind of uses are allowed and then also some development standards of what the building will end up looking like. Um, our zoning bylaw is going through a huge renewal and same with our municipal development plan so make sure to stay engaged with those processes because it's going to change our city for many years to come. But um, right now we have, right now we have this like we kind of have a lot of stuff going on here. We are... A map of Old Strathcona. Here. Um, so we're in a DC1 zone. It's actually a, like a heritage zone for this area. Um, but uh, there are park or green spaces sort of zones that'll be applied and then that'll create the space from like a land use management perspective. And fun fact, um, the uh, zoning bylaw as it is right now, um, the zone that you'll find in the River Valley is A. Most of these zones are uh, like the letters associated with them are like AP, area park, RA7 is like a residential higher density, DC1 direct control. Most of them are associated with like their title, but A for this River Valley kind of like metropolitan recreational zone is uh, labeled that way because it was the first zone that was created, which I think just uh, says something so nice about our city in that like that was one of the most valuable things that planners had at top of mind when they were uh, breaking our city into little bitty pieces. All right, but the road is often not that straight. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit curvy um, and you gotta wiggle around to get there. Um, so most of the spaces that we're probably gonna be looking at today already exist and already have gone through that land, ma uh, land use management process. Um, and so a lot of what planners do is they, um, with the community, uh, they reimagine what spaces can look like. Um, so this is just, I, I am not this planner. Uh, there are planners who are so artistic and are so good at this, uh, but I am not this kind of person, so I really, I don't have too much to say about it, uh, but I think it's really fun. Uh, but as a planner, I'm really excited about transportation systems. And uh, so one space that we can kind of look at a couple different ways is streets. So if we look at like this road right of way where the, those cars are right now, this slide is a cutaway of a residential street. Um, those cars are there because at the area structure plan phase, we said there's gonna be a road in this area. And then at the subdivision phase, we broke out the road right of way. And then uh, at the following phases, we built the road and then the houses were there and that's what it was. But as planners, we can also decide to redesign. So 
we can we can choose to be like maybe we don't need a road what if all of these houses have like access off the alley like and it's a very low traffic street and it could be put to a better use you could uh decide to uh in uh, reapproach the subdivision process and change that from a road right of way to just a parcel of land and then it could be rezoned to be something else who's to say so um we can go through the, that huge process and also we can just like inhabit spaces in different ways oh ooh. Yes, okay, so like a parade, <laughs> a parade. Okay, in the middle of the street now, Stephen has pasted in a picture of a pride float. You know, like we just do these things. We just reimagine our, these spaces on our own for little blips of time. Um, or like a, a block party, woohoo, you know, like little, little stage there having a good time. Um, we can already be reimagining these spaces without actually having to go into that planning process and without having to like break up the concrete and uh, plant grass or that sort of thing. But we can do that, and I think we should. Because uh, what if there was a playground there instead, you know? Now he's pasted in a playground. Um, these are all kind of things that would still be able to support the houses that are the people that live in that area and would be able to add another uh, aspect of the environment um, within our uh, within the places closest to our homes. Um, but let's get really crazy. What if it was a cemetery? Now he's pasted in graves. Like what? Would it would it be allowed? I don't know. I we we talked about this when we were coming up with this idea, and I was like. Maybe, maybe it would be allowed. It could happen, but would it not be kind of wonderful in a way if you like grew up on that street, that street was your home, you walked up and down it from ages zero to 100, and then you kicked the bucket, and you're like, just like, put me in the ground here. Like, that would be a, a wonderful way, a wonderful, wonderfully strange way to establish a sense of place. Um, <laughs> So that's, that's stuff that we could do. Like planners could investigate opening up that process, change uh, legislation and regulations to make this happen. Uh, because I don't know, like if it's, if it's being put to a better use than just like letting cars drive back and forth, uh, I'm all about it, you know? I'd love to lay down some roses on a grave in front of my house. Maybe not, I don't know, to each their own. Um, so that, that's what we're hoping to do with the spaces today though. Like we could, we could make a space for a block party or like we could put a playground down, like tear up the street and put down a playground. Or we could get like really wild and like completely re-envision the space. So that's what we're hoping to do today. Um, but also we can be doing stuff, but also sometimes it just like, nature just happens to us. And some examples of that in Edmonton are something like a vacant lot. This is in Garneau. Um, and you just see like nature kind of coming back on that corner lot right there. And it looks a little bit scary at night, uh, but it looks pretty cool during the day. Um, that's just nature taking the space back. And so that can be part of the discussion too. Like maybe you're just like, yeah, we're just gonna let nature do its thing in this area. It's gonna be great. One thing that I uh, am really spiced up about all the time is um, the top of the bank. Uh, and this is like a horrifying, like apocalyptic photo. So this is a blurry photo of a collapsed River Valley Trail. The backstory on it is this was like a Tuesday night. I had gone to karaoke, there's a karaoke bar downtown on 105th Street. It, in a city of a million people, we do need a karaoke bar that is open on Tuesday nights, and this, this was the only one, so I was really excited about it. Um, they, they have little rooms, it's really cute. This is all an aside, because I was running home um, to get to the other side of the river, and I, uh, 
I guess it's out there now. I, like, I guess this area was like closed off, but like I ran there and saw that like the top of the bank had failed. And so uh, that basically means that there was just a small landslide, like the land had resettled and was uh, the path was no longer uh, straight. It was all falling apart. And so the city had like clear cut the area and is now like paving a new path. But um, one thing that I think about in that space is like, why don't we just like let the trees stick around there? Like they're providing, although the slope has failed a little bit, if we let vegetation come back in they, that can provide further stability for the slope so for those like poor like million dollar skinny homes like right at, right above this point they are less likely to fall into the uh, into the river valley my heart goes out to you um, but what they're doing here instead is just uh, applying more of like a land use management or uh, kind of like lens and uh, remaking the space as it was but we could in these visioning uh, sessions, be like, no, we're gonna let this happen. Another really cool example of that, and this is my last slide, um, this is, that's me, <laughs> pretty cute. Uh, this is in Southwest Edmonton, um, kind of in the Terwilliger area, there's, uh, this is where some million dollar houses did fall into the River Valley in like the 90s, so I'm sitting on the foundation of an old home. Um, and uh, yeah, what happened here is uh, people just build, like city planners let people build their houses too close to the edge of the river valley. There was no public access uh, behind their properties and so it was like literally just like a cliff behind their house and then eventually the cliff gave way. Um, and so now it's actually become a public space where people are allowed to uh, go and look at this like beautiful vantage point. It's kind of like the end of the world but instead of like a road falling in which is municipal infrastructure, it's like people's million dollars homes uh, and I'm more about that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we can, we can see how nature is impacting the land use management process and we can kind of just uh, let go of the reins and let nature be affecting um, the space more fulsomely instead of having to over-regulate or over-control things. Um, so yeah, I definitely encourage you to check it out sometime. It is in Southwest Edmonton, um, so it's you're, you may have to drive. I've biked there before, it's doable. Lots of the time there's like teenagers at the viewpoint in, in their cars and they're like hotboxing their vehicles. So. Very on brand, but still a beautiful space to uh, go to. Um, and so I really am excited about this next part of our session. And I hope that this has inspired your minds just a touch as we jump into this next phase. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. And this is where I told the audience we'd take a quick break. So they could, you know, just casually synthesize all of those ideas before coming back and making plans to put all of them into action right here in Edmonton. And I also encourage the audience to donate to the Resilience Institute. The Resilience Institute does awesome work helping Albertan communities adapt to climate change. Thank you to all of you who donated. We raised $600 in donations at this event. And at least 75 bucks so far on top of that from sales of a print that artist Amanda Schutz has made of the white-tailed prairie hare. You can keep buying those through December online. Five bucks from each sale goes to the Resilience Institute. Link on our website. All right. We'll let everybody get back in here. We're going to do a duet. No. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit do 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 do. Turn around. <laughs> But seriously, face up here, face up here. You know, I actually uh, recently heard someone sing that on Camelback in the Desert. 
She was ready for the camel ride to end. Aww. And that's as much as I'm going to tell that yeah. story. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Stephen and I are going to uh, help you with a thing, uh, doing some city building at your tables. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may notice that we've given you either Lego or plasticine or some maps or uh, twisty... Uh, Pipe cleaners. Thank you. This is why we have an urban planner up hey. here. We want you to spend the next 20 minutes working in groups to build nature in our city. You don't, you don't have to stay where you're sitting if you're at a Lego table and you find that you're a plasticine kind of gal. Um, you can find one of those spaces. Um, at the end, we'll get a few of you up to present what your group came up with. You have 20 minutes, and uh, Steve and I will be walking around. Um, mm-hmm. Asking thought-provoking questions, being able to be of assistance. Exploding your minds. Yes. Boom. And go. Producer Trevor Chow Fraser went around the room to eavesdrop on what each table was making. I'm I'm drawing dogs, um, dogs that we might recognize by their faces and so on, um, merging with sea creature parts such as octopus tentacles and fins and gills and and clamshells and things like that. Yeah, it's a tiny house with a rooftop garden. Yeah. So if we get a pod cemetery, then we can have trees growing out of that. We can also have, it can be like an artist colony. Can I ask what your guys' uh, project looks like right now? (laughs) This is so much pressure. This is Edmonton, but this is, so far we've given all the land back. Um, We have a gondola on the far side and a lot of people who are able to tube down the river. We've also returned all of the streets. Um, yeah, yeah, these are yeah, some nice tubes. This is uh, summertime. Um, Treaty Six adhesion. Uh, we also have turned all of the the main streets back into sort of like there's community garden plots and more sort of park space out in front of the houses, and then um, our we've put streetcars kind of going down all of the back alleys. Uh, there's a lake that is actually, there used to be a lake in McKernan, so we've brought back the lake in McKernan. The concept was in a lot of communities in the city here, there are like um, a community hall and a skating rink and sometimes there's like a, a school or a soccer field or whatever connected to it. And they're great, but they're often just giant big vacant fields with a couple buildings on them. So we thought, well, why don't we have a community hall that is interconnected with like footpaths that could maybe be iced over and be created into some sort of skateway um, that's next to like a hockey arena. But the hockey arena, when you flood it out, could also flood into a tiny little skating rink through the trees, so you're also taking care of the trees and the forests that we've created, and around our, our beautiful snowmen, because we want to have some ice sculptures. Um, yeah, and that it all is kind of like a one one system, but that focuses on many different areas. It sounds like you could also license Disney to like turn it into a frozen theme park, maybe. We're, 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 we're gonna, we have selected two tables who are going to come and present. Everybody else, you've done great work. These are just very cool ideas and very transportable up to the stage. We'll get the group at the back to come to the front first. Or actually, this group is already mobilizing. You, yes. you three come up. 
Okay, so this group that's going to come up and explain their thing, I just want you to know that I didn't pick this group, Stephen did, and he didn't even know that this is my mom. Well done, Stephen. <laughs> okay, well, this is my first time, and already I'm up on stage. But I did a podcast with you. Yet number whatever, I forget what it was. Anyway, so Denise, our table... We wanted to do the shadow of the city, and we built a constructed wetlands pond where all the houses which have green rooftops. Mm -hmm. And solar panels, solar and it's high-density housing. Yes. The sewage system goes into the constructed wetlands, which has created a space for nature. So we have a silver fox, an arctic grayling. I don't think they would really be in a pond. They're more like a creek, but it's gray. I only had gray putty. We have a pink flamingo. Mm -hmm. Pink flamingos usually hang out here. And what else? Um, some lovely trees. So we've got a maple and then another... Cherry blossoms. Cherry blossom. Okay, yeah. And then um, the pollinator we've got and some elk. Um, and in the pond itself, we've got some um, duckweed cattails. and cattails. Duckweed and cattails. And then we're not sure what those little purple things are, but they're birds or One rabbits. One of them is a bunny. Rabbits. It, and, then a, it, yeah. and then a mushroom. Yeah. Oh, right on. I really was inspired by that one because uh, it dealt with something that we all deal with. Like we all poop, we all poop. And if we have high density housing, there's just more poop. So to deal with it and make it uh, a positive for the community and turn it into a constructed wetland somehow to treat that sewage, I'm all about it. I'm excited. We'll get the group group in the back to mm -hmm. come forward now? Just so we have it on tape, I'm just going to mention that that was my mom, Denise, and also Karen Hogan-Kuzira, who was on the Climate Proof Farm episode. Oh, cool. That was a good one. I liked that. I liked that episode. Yeah. All right, so we have reimagined a traditional block in Edmonton. Uh, you can choose the neighborhood, but it has to be a really, like, progressive, up-and-coming thinking people because uh, here's our vision is that uh, once houses become uninhabitable instead of rebuilding them we return those lots um, to some sort of like common good use a kind of like retreating and uh, then they are used inhabited by uh, squatters in tiny houses who care for the community gardens spaces and utilizing the streets for uh, a bike lane with no cars going down it and a cemetery if certain people so live on that block and want to push that. I'm there. Park uh, existing bigger, home, bigger homes will still exist until they're deemed unsafe, but they will park down here or use their alley access, thinking about maybe a Ritchie neighborhood. So no infills, just going forward with more community gardens and um, tiny house movement individuals. Uh, of course, if the whole block is agreeing to want to do this. So let's hope there's more of that. Yes. And, uh, oh, sorry, can I grab your uh, names for the lovely crowd? My name is Carrie Lorenz, uh, resident of Park Allen. Nice. And Miriam. Thank you, Miriam. Dreams. Yes, sisters. 
That one was uh, highly interesting because I think a lot of the time the discussion around infill in Edmonton is uh, you're either like a NIMBY or you're like really want a bunch of development going on in your neighborhood. At the end of the day, the infill process is about bringing about more density in the core of our city so it's uh, actually sustainable and manageable to continue to provide services. If we have everybody living really far away, it just gets more expensive to provide stuff. So in that example, they weren't necessarily rebuilding homes, but they were having people live in tiny homes on these lots. And that could actually, uh, that may result in like way more density than you would ever have in uh, you know a bunch of single family detached homes. So on the sur it's just a cool idea and we love it. Amazing. Right on. Thanks everybody. And thanks Stephen. Okay, the last note I want to leave you with today is why. Why do this? Why imagine space for the rest of nature when the odds seem stacked against us sometimes? There are all the scientific reasons, there are the moral reasons, there are religious reasons. Here's my favorite from Aldo Leopold. Okay, sorry, you have to realize that he lives in continental US for this quote to make sense. There seems to be a tacit assumption that if grizzlies survive in Canada and Alaska, that is good enough. It is not good enough for me Relegating grizzlies to Alaska is about like relegating happiness to heaven. One may never get there. This is it for today, and this is it for this season of Let's Find Out, so thanks everybody for joining us. Thank all of you for coming out. Uh, to those of you eventually hearing this at home, thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Round of applause for Trevor. <laughs> Our team this year also included Dylan Hall and Omar Salafu. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. I hear we're very bingeable. Um, and also you can hear all our episodes on letsfindoutpodcast.com. Uh, while we're on hiatus between seasons, you can help other people find the show by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by telling someone about an episode that you liked. If you're looking for other ways to support the show and stay in our circle, sign up to become a Taproot member, sign up for a newsletter on our website. Thank you to our amazing speakers for today, Luke Wanick, Emily Riddle, and Stephen Rates. Uh, thanks to Elizabeth Spencer, Karen Unland, and Kate Spencer for helping prep everything for today. Thanks to The Almanac for hosting us, to Chelsea Roberts on the soundboard, to Ask for a Better World, and Shafraz Kaba for uh, helping us eat today. Shafraz couldn't be here, but uh, yeah. Thanks, Shafraz. Uh, Catherine helped brainstorm today. Catherine Lennon. Um, Kyla Tichkowski helped with all these crafty things in your table. Thank you, Kyla. Um, Amanda Schutz just made some art based on our Most Edmonton Species episode. Thank you so much, Amanda, for sharing it with us. Thanks to Taproot Edmonton, the Edmonton Historical Board, and all of you Taproot members out there for making this possible. Our curious Edmontonians this season uh, included Shelley Jodwin Schwinar, Brooklyn Schneider, my mom, Denise Cheng Yen, Alan Farrell, Amanda Van Merlin, Alison Brooks Starks, Dustin Bajer, and Marlena Wyman, and almost all their them in the room. Shout outs to the many researchers and gardeners and authors and archivists and librarians and farmers who helped us answer their questions. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. <laughs> Yeah, he does all the things. <laughs> Original music for this podcast is by the monumentally lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. 
that's it for this episode. Until next time, keep your questions coming.